Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here by myself right now, actually. We are still in our post-Oscar period of maybe taking a step back or two. Um, We'll be back next week with everybody and a special guest to look at the year ahead. Uh, But first, for this week's episode, we're handing the whole thing over to Mike Hogan, who sat down in studio with Steve Coogan and Michael Winterbottom, the team behind the new film Greed, which opens in theaters this week. Uh, Mike saw it at Toronto, which is... um, as you may remember, the same festival where many of us saw Parasite for the first time. And what Mike has been saying basically ever since then is that basically all the movies he saw at Toronto were about class war. And uh, he says, if Parasite was the most triumphantly effective of those, the most hilariously brutal was Greed. Uh, It's a movie in which Steve Coogan plays a fictional but somewhat uh, realistic version of a fashion mogul, like sort of like someone who might own a H&M or a Topshop type place. Um, And it looks into his ridiculously luxurious over-the-top life and then also at the women in Sri Lanka who make the clothes on which he has made his fortune. Mike's quote about it that he sent for me to share says, I think it does a fantastic job of capturing the vulgar absurdity of 21st century super wealth while raising some very important issues about inequality and the hidden costs of first world excess. If you know Steve Coogan and Michael Winterbottom, you know some of their previous collaborations, which they also talked to Mike about. Uh, There's 24-hour party people and then also the trip movies. Uh, There's a fourth one coming in the near future. And they talk about why they're so certain that's the last one, which might break a lot of hearts out there. Um, And they also talk about the person who Coogan played in 24-Hour Party People, Tony Wilson, and how that movie kind of uh, ironically rescued his reputation. And they also get into a lot of the really serious issues that Greed is about. And it's a comedy. Steve Coogan has this ridiculous pair of fake teeth. But uh, you can hear that both of them are just really passionate about bringing to light the economic inequality that's at the basis of a lot of the cheap clothes that uh, many of us wear. Uh, And they bring up that there's a lot of issues that we talk about now that we wouldn't talk about the same way 20 years ago about the environment and gender politics and diversity. But as Steve Coogan put it, one thing that tends to get marginalized from mainstream agenda is poverty. And this film is really an effort at getting at that. So it's a great interview. Uh, They are obviously incredibly smart. And um, Mike is a really big fan of both of their work together, which I think you can hear in the interview, too. So let's give it over to Mike for uh, the conversation about greed with Michael Winterbottom and Steve Coogan. Well, I'm thrilled to be here with uh, Steve Coogan and Michael Winterbottom, who have collaborated on many amazing things, some of my favorite films, and, and now have Greed opening here in the U.S. And just want to jump right into talking about the film, which is a sort of really funny but very stinging, I would say, satire, based in part on uh, a British mogul, fashion mogul, named Sir Philip Green. I mean, can you tell us, Michael, uh, how did you get interested in the story? What's the origin of all this? 
Well, the film is a fiction. You know, Steve right. plays a character called uh, Sir Richard McCready. He's a fictional retail fashion tycoon. But the starting point was there's a, there's a guy in Britain who owns brands like Topshop. He's quite famous in Britain as being sort of yeah. king of the high street, Philip Green. And he had a one of his brands went bankrupt. So there's a lot of examination of his business practices. And that sort of get, was the starting point, gave us the idea for, for, for looking at inequality in the world in general, but in particular, inequality in retail fashion. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a huge industry. It employs tens of millions of people making the clothes, mainly women, about 80% of them women. Uh, in countries like Sri Lanka, where we filmed, where they get paid about four quid a day, the women we were filming with get paid about four quid a day making clothes for international brands. And the bosses of the brands are incredibly rich. So Philip Green's worth about a billion, mm-hmm. but the guy who owns H&M is worth about $20 billion. The guy who owns Zara is worth about $60 billion. And all that money's come from the clothes that these women make. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was the starting point of like, well, maybe we could do something funny about that. <laughs> well, like, yeah. I mean, so right, so like, well, well, Steve, when you you came into the project, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen had been connected to it, and uh-huh. then that didn't happen. And, yeah. and I, I read that you approached Michael. Is that right? I did, I did. And uh, ironically, Sasha's uh, wife played my wife in the movie. So, oh yes, uh, yeah, I love Fisher. Uh, I love Fisher uh-huh. So. Um, yeah, um, so that which is a strange sort of uh, happy coincidence, but she's fantastic, amazing uh, uh, actor to work with. Um, yeah, I heard about that, and I said, uh, I rang Michael and said, I'll do it right. uh, <laughs> if Sash is not available. Um, so, so, and you know, Michael turned to the numbers people, and they said, okay, uh, if you make it a bit cheaper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but. I wanted to be involved because I, I knew about what the subject matter was, and yeah. uh, and I like and knowing I worked with Michael, you know, half a dozen times before that yeah. on different film projects, uh, and uh, I wanted to be involved in telling that story. And I thought I knew I'd have a take on how to uh, play that kind of role. Um, yeah. And uh, and like with all Michael stuff, what's interesting about it is that he does stuff that's. Uh, entertaining, but has uh, some uh, uh, substance and is about something, and uh, so it, it, there's nothing. You know what, what's not to like. You know. Did you guys worry about or or fret over? I know Steve and uh, well enough to know you fret over comedy in a good way. You want it to be right. Did you think about like, hey, what's the right balance between satire and laughs, and like try and actually get this point across? Uh, I, th- I think the film is like lots of different worlds, really. You know, it's a world yeah. that there's the, the central spine of the film is a is a party that Steve's character is throwing in on a Greek island, a Roman themed party. Mm-hmm. So the sort of present tense of the film is is that he's trying to throw his party to show he's still the boss, he's still the king, and it all goes horribly wrong. So, so there's like all that stuff has got a lot of not only Steve but a lot of other great British comedy kind of performers kind of in that. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's lots of just stupid things that happen that you know that, that spoil the party. So that, so that was one strand. That was about the first month we filmed. And then, then it cross cuts from how he from that party to how he made his money in the past, mm-hmm. and then also to you know his life on his luxury super yacht in Monaco where he doesn't pay any tax. But also like the women, it cuts back to Sri Lanka where the women are working making the clothes factory. So it's lots of different worlds. So it wasn't really a question about having to work out the bounds at the beginning. It's just like, let's try and find some way of cramming all these different bits into the same film. Right, right, right. And, you know, I try not to spoil too much about a film, but everyone who knows anything about this movie knows about the teeth. So can we talk about the teeth and Uh, and how that all came about and Uh, what it was like to act with those in your mouth? uh, It's funny, it's like, we're trying to do this sort of uh, challenging political film that sort of challenges institutions. (laughs) Let's talk about your teeth. Okay, I don't know, that's that's fine. Um, The teeth are... I could I could try and sort of roll it back into the political message and say the teeth are a metaphor for what everything that's wrong with capitalism. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, the, the, yeah, we, we, when you you know part of the thing is trying to make the film 
entertaining and uh, so you know one of the things you make observations about the super rich and what they do is they tend to sport all year round tans um, because a lot of the time is spent uh, floating um, in the tax free status and uh, where they get brown and um, if they have any money to spare they don't want to spend it on they normally throw the price of a, a an SUV at their mouth to right. give themselves brand new teeth <laughs> and uh, have a smile that uh, looks ridiculous anywhere but Los Angeles. I think I tried to, I went to a hygienist to try and make my teeth super clean, but uh, couldn't quite get that LA smile. So we just had some false ones that we had made and I, I fixed on. And, um, yeah. Uh, so that's what else do you want to know about the teeth? I don't know. I, like I almost feel like like technically, did it did it like shape your performance having that? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it's kind of, of like in what, your well, face. What I literally. did. Well, I'm not really a method actor. I don't. I, don't right. uh, I just I'm just not very good at that. I, try, I think I tried it once years ago. And it didn't really work. Uh, so I I do I do sort of t- external things. I, I I I like to look different and, and I look in the mirror and uh, yeah. you know I put in these super white teeth and uh, have this tan and. Uh, my blow-dried hair uh, in, in, in the mirror. I look in the mirror and I go, that guy looks like a bit of a jerk, but I, I think yeah. I know who he is and right. I know how to play him. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I like to do, use external things. And I think, it's strange, it doesn't, it, it, but I don't, I hope uh, that, that that doesn't make a performance superficial because there are superficial things, but somehow you sort of work your way back inside who someone is by by uh, having the stuff that they they have the, those external things make as a way of working yourself back into to find out what makes someone tick and, and how their the brain works. So, yeah. so counterintuitively, the superficial things can make you find out things that are, are beyond the superficial. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I feel like the movie, the teeth are exaggerated but believable in the context. And, and I feel yeah. like as a Vanity Fair journalist, yeah. like I'm watching this movie and I'm going, this is like, this is actually kind of what this world is like right you know it feels like a satire but i don't think there's anything in the movie that is not in some way based on you can cite a real example of of that of the where the stuff that's in the movie has happened in in reality so i think i think any anything in the film that it seems kind of absurd or grotesque actually the real world is more absurd and grotesque it's not <laughs> right. exaggerated it's not yeah. quite being able to make it big enough so given that you know and one of the kind of bits in the film that's really funny is the you know the musicians for hire who play these billionaire events and the actors who kind of show up and are part of the billionaires flex is to be like I can get these celebrities to come so how did you get actual celebrities and musicians at one point there's a hilarious thing with James Blunt where he shows up you know literally serenading uh, McCready and and his wife played by Ira Fisher like how does that negotiation work are you upfront with James about what he's going to be doing? Well, when we first started, I, I went to meet the people who organized these kind of parties. You know, so they just kind of like, they would tell me, you know, they, they have like years p- to pre- prepare it. And they gave me a sort of price list of like, this is what this person costs, <laughs> this is what this person costs, how many people they bring with them, the crew and so on. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have that kind of money. You know, the, the, the people charge a lot for those sort of parties. So all the kind of people who came and, and were the celebrities in our film were kind of doing it because they were wanting to be in the film, wanted to be with Steve, right. they wanted to draw attention to the issues the film raises. So people like James and that, you know, they came and did it for fun. You know, so it was really lucky we had like Fatboy Slim and uh, Pixie Lott and, and Stephen Fry and Colin Firth and those Kieran Knightley all did little appearances. And uh, fortunately, we weren't paying the, the, the sort of the price that you have to pay. So 
Right. For the real parties, you get paid a fortune. I think they just got their bus fare, didn't they? In, 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 <laughs> return. return. Yeah. Well, I love, love your, your line where you say, oh, we could actually afford two Tom Jones. You know, And, yeah. and Tom Jones did, did play well, at the 50th birthday party of Philip Green. No, he? there's a whole li- long list, which I, I did have I've, I've left somewhere, because I don't want to quote any names in the case I get them wrong. But yeah, there's a whole long list of people who, who have played at Philip Green's parties and also other parties. You know, sure. so even the biggest, richest, most successful uh, bands and performers seem to be perfectly happy to go along and become a sort of wedding band for the night for a bit of cash. But is there like any risk of, I mean, obviously the intention is sort of wake people up. Is there a risk of pissing people off? Is that is that a goal to piss uh, people off? I don't, I think if you don't piss anybody off, you're probably doing something wrong or yeah. bland. Yeah, um, right. So it's, an, it's just, I think it goes with the territory. You, you, you know, it's like ruffling feathers. You have to you have to do it, um, and you yeah. have to sort of uh, risk. I mean, there are some people who don't like to uh, cause antagonism, and um, Michael's not one of them, and uh, neither but we, am I. We've had like we had a screen, a couple of screens like connected with Fashion Week in, in London. I think there's, you know, it's like the film isn't about like oh things are terrible, you can't do anything about it. It's, I think you know, it's like you could, you know, this, things are terrible, and you could change it. You know, I think lots of people in mm-hmm. fashion, in the fashion industry, who you might think are slightly the target. I actually want things to be better, want you know, better, more ethical kind of fashion, want you know, greener fashion, want better wages for women workers. I don't think anyone, even the bosses of the biggest, most successful companies, want uh, the women who make their clothes to be earning sort of four or five dollars a day, mm-hmm. you know, when they're earning, when they're making billions. You know, you know, no one wants that. It's just a question about how to organize a change, actually regulate the system to make it better. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, and I'd say that you know, the, the people talk about lots of stuff that seemed uh, untenable. Uh, 20 years ago, even mm-hmm. uh, like you know, gender politics and uh, the whole Me Too hashtag Me Too movement mm-hmm. and um, diversity and the environment. These are things that people talk about and are on this sort of agenda for you know the society discusses these things. And uh, it, the, but the one thing that they tend to um, tends to get marginalised uh, for mainstream agenda is, is poverty and the huge uh, gap between the rich and the poor, the super rich and the, the super poor, and right. um, I think it's the elephant in the room. Some people try to try to address it, uh, but um, I think you know big multinational companies only really change their behaviour when they think there may be some long-term impacts uh, to their bottom line or uh, sort of PR image. And uh, if you, if you can put the, if you can sort of raise this as, as an issue, then uh, and it, beca- it gets currency then behavior does change. Corporate behavior does change. It cares about public opinion. Yeah. Well, Michael, I know, I saw the first uh, cut, I guess, where I saw the cut at Toronto, which had some different titles at the end, I believe, than the one now, or had those already been changed? I think think I'd already lost that battle by Toronto. I think they were the ones we still have. I'm misremembering it. I I may be misremembering it. It had a big impact on me, and I still feel like it's it's impactful, but I know that you had had a kind of lost a battle over trying to really name names at the end. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, it's it's boring to talk about arguments you have in edits, Yeah, but Mm -hmm. but originally it just seemed like the most effective way of sort of trying to sum up the issue is you know to look at say women workers in Bangladesh getting paid three dollars fifty a day. In those it, last summer it was actually less, but it's like gone up since about three dollars fifty a day in Bangladesh yeah. making clothes for, for example, H and M. And there's the boss of H and M, and he's worth twenty billion dollars. So it just went through alternating captions like right. that. So to, and if you take the particular numbers, it's just a bit more. You're know, talking about vaguely. It's a big big gap when you see it's like twenty billion dollars versus three dollars a day working for the same company. These are the women making the clothes for that company. It seems crazy. Yeah. You know, so it was like that, and then. Also 
also did name and shame a few celebrities who, who played uh, lots of parties <laughs> for cash. But but um, but anyway, that, that so so now that's why we're doing these interviews to try and get all those numbers and names out in the interviews. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, and and so, yeah, are there any names you want to uh, say here that you weren't able <laughs> no, to put I, into I, the closing credit? I've drawn a veil over the bands and the subjects. But I, I, there's this, in the film, there's a kind of funny thing that Steve's character is trying to get all these celebrities to come to the party, and he's struggling because he's had a bit of a scandal because one brand went bankrupt. He's struggling to get them. So it's, it kind of provides quite a lot of comedy in the film about you know how to try and get these people to come. Yeah. But there is a serious issue, which I think is that fashion uses those celebrities to hide the reality of what you're buying. So when you buy a $10 T-shirt or a $20 dress, you don't think about the women who've made that dress who, you know, and their world and what they're getting paid and where they live and how they live. What you think of is Beyonce or Kate Moss and all the powerful kind of empowered women's faces you see in the shop. And so the celebrity and the glamour of the fashion industry is used to distract you from the reality of it. So I think, you know, it's, you know, it's, you know I think it is quite... It's, that's why we're so happy that quite a few celebrities did come along and take part in the film, yeah, because mm-hmm. because celebrity is, it can be used. It's very important these days, and it can be used yeah. to, mm. to to sort of draw was, attention to yeah, things or to hide things. Right, right, right. There was a sort of supreme irony a few years ago when there were lots of uh, celebrities, for right for the, the well for, for well-intentioned reasons, were wearing these T-shirts that said, "This is what a feminist looks like." Yeah. And the, the irony is that those T-shirts were made by largely women being paid a pittance in the developing world. Right. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. Your character, Greedy McCready, it almost reminded me of Adam Sandler's character in Uncut Gems where there's just like a compulsion to, you know, do a deal or whatever. Yeah. And in his case, that, that thing of saying, um, you know, Shake my nod your head and what shake is my, it? Nod your head and shake my hand. Nod your head and shake my hand as, as a way of of ending, you know, negotiations that seem like he could never get what he would want, and then through some kind of magical mixture of like. Mm social pressure and mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. people would just cave and give well, it to him. yeah i mean look when i play the character i can't even though someone who i take a you know uh, i find sort of slightly 
uh, repellent in reality, that kind of behavior. You have to understand it. And of course, uh, everyone can understand the sort of the adrenaline rush of people who, whose, whose job is to make money and, and they, they, that's, the, that's an end in and of itself. You know, yeah. It's not like a byproduct of something they're passionate about or that's something they're very good at. That's it. That's the end is to make money. And then that becomes make more money. And, and, uh, uh, and you can, that, that, it's understandable that um, someone can find that very, uh, you know, Given the sort of the adrenaline rush of trying to get the next deal done and the next deal done, um, but uh, well, I thought so, it was so, super insightful, especially in an, yeah. in an era that we call the Trump era. You know, yes, of course. To well, understand that that's that's a driving force. In yeah, I mean, well, and, and I think there's sort of a someone was asking me before about how the narrative these days is that you know many people who are sort of um, subjugated by these. Uh, uh, by the the, the powerful, uh, then end up voting them into office, and I think uh, you know, Trump is an example of that, where people uh, seem to think that he's something to aspire to, rather than recognizing that he's someone who is an, an agent and uh, sort of a, uh, you know participates in the sort of the subjugation repression of the people who work for very little money. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think part of the reason for that is that the people who are super rich control the delivery of the message and um, can frame the argument. There aren't, there aren't. Um, if you if you try and take away the billions these people have, everything will fall apart and everyone will. The whole world will go to hell in a handcart. That's the sort of uh, the narrative that's that's, that's peddled. Uh, and I think the reason for that is that the the poor. Uh, the poor of the world don't own newspapers uh, right. or, or, or right. own the means of uh, delivery message or social media. You know. Well, let me ask you this, though, because that brings up something. We, we talk on this podcast about awards and the Oscars, and, and we talk a lot about, you know, what kind of message the Oscars are trying to send, what kind of uh, message actors are trying to send in their movies and in their speeches and all that. And I had an incredibly depressing <laughs> rabbit hole where I looked at a Wall Street Journal story about how the Super Bowl ratings are going up and the Oscars ratings are going down. And I scrolled through the comments, admittedly, Wall Street Journal subscribers. And 99% of the comments were, yeah, I'm just sick of Hollywood people, you know, rich Hollywood people telling me what to think. And I don't need that from. So do you think about that, Michael, when you're doing films, trying to tackle issues? How do you get around that and reach people without making them feel like they're getting lectured to well i think you know i think if you make a film you know you can make any film you like you know it doesn't it's up to you what subject you choose to make a film on so in this case we're making a film about you know hopefully entertaining film about a guy throwing a party on a, on a greek island but also a film about inequality mm-hmm. in the world inequality in the fashion industry i hope the film's entertaining and then obviously when you come to interviews like this you're publicizing that message you know mm-hmm. i mean so you know, it's obviously Steve can talk more about like other stuff, but it's like I don't go around talking about other stuff, just talking about what's in the film. You know, and just yeah. like for me, it's like making a film is a bit like being a journalist. You know, if you write an article about something, that's legitimate. That's what journalists are for. You know, filmmakers are supposed to make films. That's what we do. Yeah. It's like that's your job. And the plight of refugees is something you've addressed for a long time in your work, right? Yeah, I did a film about refugees about 20 years ago, and uh, yeah. unfortunately, the situation has probably got is, it, that we made that film then about two Afghan refugees coming to Britain from Pakistan. It was a refugee camp in Pakistan. Afghan refugees uh, because the situation was bad then and the situation seems to have got worse really and so it, one of the reasons we have some refugees in this we have some Syrian refugees on the beach which really annoy Rich McCready because they're in his view he can see them from his hotel and he wants to get rid of them so it's like one of the things that really annoys him is these Syrian refugees are on his right. beach and I have to say less people at home who haven't seen the movie yet think that it's luxury I mean like there is an insanely funny dark you want to you want to 
kill yourself for laughing scene where the refugees are being run off the beach at the same time that they're shooting a reality show. Like, it's very bold and good. Yeah, good. I'm glad you find it funny. But it's, it's like, <laughs> And so it just felt like there'd be, in a way, because... Part of the idea is to try and connect these worlds that seem very separate, you know, and, but where the connections are hidden. So, you know, Rich McCready on his, his super yacht in, in Monaco and, and the women in Sri Lanka, that, you know, those people are connected because they make the, the clothes that make the money for him. But we don't really think about the connection. And I, so I thought it, as we had this party on the island, you know, there are lots of, in the real world, there are lots of Syrian refugees on Greek islands who are stuck. You know, they've got they've got out of Syria, they've got through Turkey, they're stuck on a Greek island, and, and we in Europe are not letting them go any further. Right. And it felt like, okay, well, that be that's another thing that when we go on holiday to Greece, you know, we, we try not to think about them. We lie on the beach, we try not to think about the other people around the corner on a different beach mm -hmm. because we just want to have our nice time. So it felt like it was, it, they were sort of, in a way, in a similar thing that people that we know about, we know the situation, we know there's a million refugees come across the Mediterranean, we know thousands have died, but let's try not to think about it. So I thought it would be a useful parallel to between the Syrian refugees and the women, but also just a good subject for humour because it would be something that Rich, Rich would get really cross about and would be annoying to him and he would try and control and in, in the end he can't control it. It's out of his control. Yeah. You, you said you knew how to play a guy like this. Can you tell us more about what your thoughts were um, on it? The overarching uh, message of the film is to, to, about thinking about this stuff and raising it as an issue. Um, and uh, essentially the guy you mentioned uh, saying the sort of caricature of uh, this sort of uh, arrogant, um, privileged uh, white liberal, um, I, I, you know, is, uh, is, is a caricature, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of telling, sort of framing things, of, of saying, telling people what to think is like questioning things is important. Questioning, uh, no one has a monopoly on wisdom and questioning things is a healthy thing to do and uh, that's what the film does but beyond that I, I can't uh, let my personal views of uh, Rich McCready um, inform my performance so I, I have to you know everybody has some degree of humanity even people you know I, I disapprove of and, and there are people I don't like and I don't like their values uh, I don't like Rich McCready's values personally and I don't uh, subscribe to them but I do understand uh, the the thrill of the chase, and I understand uh, uh, people who want to, uh, people who are competitive, and um, and also he's he's funny. We made the character funny, probably funnier actually than uh, than the, the the real people. The people are those those people are in reality because yeah. we wanted him to be entertaining, and he is funny. And that that's there there are plenty of people who uh, sometimes there are people in in life who you approve of, but you wouldn't want to hang out with them mm -hmm. and uh, there are other people that are reverse you think well I don't particularly like that person but he's quite entertaining mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you know successful people can be charismatic and bullying mm -hmm. at the same time mm -hmm. and uh, I suppose that's what they're always put into the character so I, I, I it was kind of enjoyable really uh, playing him you know it was like a, a vacation from myself yeah. <laughs> it's enjoyable to watch um, so Brett our producer and I were talking before you guys got here about 24-hour party people and what a huge movie that has turned out to be. Are you surprised by how, Michael, are you surprised by what, like, a iconic movie that became? Uh, yes. I mean, obviously, it's always nice to hear people that remember it and like it. It was a lot of fun to do at the time. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, when Steve says that he doesn't really like method acting, I'd say at 24-hour party people, quite a lot of people were in quite a method uh, oh, area yeah. of uh, yeah. trying to live, live the dream and <laughs> yes. uh, live the life. 
Yeah, it's it's strange to me that it's sort of its reputation sort of grown over the years. Yeah. Um, and I have very fond memories of it. I think this might be my favorite film I've made. I've not seen it for years. I don't feel I want to in, in the really for, for a while because it sort of has. It's, to me, it's like looking at an old uh, shoebox full of old photographs or something. From it's like a memory to me. And also because yeah. it was about part of my life because I grew up in Manchester and the, the world that the movie set in was a movie, a world that I was tangentially involved in in my youth. Uh, well, I, I was reading that, real, you, you know. that you worked for Tony Wilson for I worked a with him. Time. I worked, worked with him. him right? I presented a T. Well, I was. Uh, he was like a well-known local TV presenter and journalist, and yeah. also he was managed these bands, and, and he sort of discovered these bands and gave them a platform. He was the first person to put the Sex Pistols on television in Britain uh, because he managed to get the executives at the, at the regional TV station to let give him some sort of autonomy, and he, he, he used that to try and uh, do things that were avant-garde. At the same time, he had this sort of day job of being a very prosaic TV presenter. So, and I did, I did, there was a TV show he did many years ago, and I was the, uh, at that time, a sort of fledgling, uh, aspiring comic with, uh, you know, a slightly sort of ill-formed talent. And uh, <laughs> I, and they sort of put me on the show as the kind of guy looking back at the week's news in an in a inverted commas funny way. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was uh, he, he was the presenter, so I, I spent a lot of time with him. And, uh, and he I mean, sadly passed away uh, in 2007. Yeah. And he was. I met him a couple of times. Uh, he's in Twenty Four Hour Party People. Yeah. I mean, what Michael, I like what Michael did is that that uh, that when you know you try and get a, an, an objective account of anything that happened in the past, you speak to different people. They have different versions of the truth. And um, whenever people challenged the version on screen, um, the real people are put into the scene saying that's not how it happened. So, right. so the film constantly sort of contra sort of internal contradictions, uh, which is what's wonderful about it. Tony Wilson told us most of the stories in the film and introduced us to everyone so we met everyone and we showed everyone scripts but he tells most of the stories and then later claimed that all the stories were not true. This <laughs> 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 seems very typical. Yeah, well, yeah. Did, I, so I read a fantastic article from the time I think it was in The Guardian where somebody was just like on the set with you guys and he was clearly kind of playing both sides saying yeah like oh this is all fake but I love it but how did he how did he end up feeling afterwards? Was he Tony, happy Tony, with Tony. it? Yeah, yeah I, I, I think so. I mean I, I'd say it's like I I think that, and this this is probably a very crude simplification. But when we when we we were researching it, we, um, he was incredibly helpful, incredibly warm, and he always was saying that this guy's a genius, that guy's a genius. He's a real enthusiast for everything about Manchester, everything about the bands. Yeah. yeah. Whereas when other people tended to be quite rude about him, he had a bit, you know, he was a bit yeah. of a magnet for for insults. Right. Uh, and then I think two months like after, later, after the film came out, maybe connected to the film, everyone then loved him. His reputation did definitely so. He became yeah. then this loved figure in Manchester. So if it did anything good, I think it probably it just meant that he got some of the, the uh, praise that he was due really for, for, yeah, for a, a career a, of supporting yeah. other people I was uh, at promoting greed in Manchester the, the other day and I uh, the, the cinema the home cinema in Manchester is in a place called Tony Wilson Square and all I was thinking was if Tony uh, was alive he'd want it to be called Anthony H Wilson Square right? <laughs> <laughs> because he liked this sort of slightly double, right. he liked to lengthen his name yeah. <laughs> elevated him slightly <laughs> So, but people got a little too method. Uh, are there any short stories that are shareable in a public uh, context? Uh, Steve, probably. Steve probably has better stories than um, you. Well, we did. We recreated any. the last night of the Hacienda, uh, which was a famous, iconic nightclub in Manchester that was very avant-garde and, and uh, adventurous and bold and new and all those things. Um, but it was demolished by the time we, we did the movie, so we had to rebuild it and recreate it. And uh, I used to go to the real one, so when I walked into the replica, I was like blown away about how 
it was identical to the, the, the place I used to go to. Yeah. Um, but we recreated the last night, and all the people who used to go to the Hacienda all turned up, and it became a real party. So what's on screen is a real party, and yeah. um, it was quite a long, sort of decadent night, and, uh, and I'll let people use their imagination. <laughs> it was definitely one of those things where when you walked off set, you couldn't really tell whether you were off set or on set. Well, that's also to Michael's shooting style, is that... Sometimes when you're acting in a movie, you're very aware of the camera, and you can you sort of you're trying to uh, use uh, your your sort of conscious and act about how you're coming across or whether you're doing a good performance. Michael would uh, often uh, the, the camera would be fluid; it'd be handheld, and and uh, he would dance out of your way, or, or you wouldn't even notice the camera was there. I mean, I remember I remember there was one scene in 24-hour party people where uh, I said, oh, "Well, in this scene, are you going to be on me or are you going to be on him?" And Michael would say, "I don't know. I, I've not made my mind up." <laughs> And sometimes when I was uh, uh, improvising a line, I remember, I, and he had the camera was on the other guy, even though I was in the scene, but the camera wasn't on me, I'd nudge Michael and, and tell him to point, sort of whisper to him to point the camera at me because I had a good line. <laughs> or, just, or just delay until we just, did point at Or just delay you. until it did point at me, yeah. Because <laughs> I, uh, uh, I just thought of a funny line. It's like, so I, in the middle of the scene, I nudge him, like, just point my finger and say, pointing at me because I've got something <laughs> funny to say. So, and one time I, I walked out of a building and, I, because I didn't know whether the camera would be on me or not, and I had to walk out this building, <clears throat> walk off down the street, and I couldn't look back to see if the camera was there because I'd ruined the shot. Mm -hmm. So, and I remember walking down the road for about two hundred yards, for you know, three hundred yards, for uh, a guy came running after me. It was like, you know, no, they were on the, they were shooting the other guy. <laughs> That's kind of Methodish. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Right. Ten percent <laughs> method, uh, ninety percent, uh, you know, make it up as you go along. Well, let's talk about the trip. Which is the other um, another creation co-creation that you guys have done that that people absolutely adore. Um, there's a new one coming, trip to Greece. Yeah, there's. It's uh, we finished it. It's uh, coming out quite soon, I think, and um, it's the last one as well. Yeah. Yeah. So for, the, for real, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, number four. That's the last one. It's, it's the trip to Greece, and it follows the it follows the same route as Odysseus trying to get back from Troy. So it starts in Troy and ends in Ithaca. So it's kind of a, the, the Odyssey. And in the Odyssey, Odysseus has been away ten years fighting the war, and then it takes him ten years to get back home. And his son, who he hasn't seen for twenty years, he left as a baby, is like looking for him. So we sort of like borrowed a little bit of that shape, and it kind of felt like it'd be a natural kind of uh, shape to sort of end the end the this saga of doing the trip. That's great. I'm so excited. And and these have all been series, TV series in the UK, and then they come to us as as films. That's right, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there is, so there, for people who are trip obsessives, they can go, how, how many hours are each season? Uh, so it's just like six, six half hours. hours. So I guess yeah. it's like a three-hour version broken okay. into so half I, hours. So I think so. in yeah. Australia and places like that, they show the film and then they show later the series. But I think here in America, for some reason, IFC have always withheld the series. Yeah, what is that? What's that all about? We have to <laughs> fix that. And do you, I have a question for you, Michael. Do you eat the food? It tends to be the crew. We're sort of filming Steve and Rob. And, I, and we t normally re sort of do two or three kind of versions of each course, two yeah. or three takes. So, of course, Steve and Rob would start pushing the food around the plate. So at the end of the take, we can all dive in and we'll grab a little bit uh, of okay. a few crumbs off Steve's but plate. But you don't have sort of like your own imperial like yeah, I, well, meal I, I, I later? Did, I did the research beforehand. So I Michael, can't speak the food, uh, food Michael beforehand. does a very long research trip that involves yeah. eating at the best restaurants in the world. Several, several yeah. countries and many restaurants. Basically, Michael does a version of the trip himself before we shoot it. So, okay. so everything's been... 
and looking for you know places that are interesting or and and tends to avoid the kind of touristy hotspots to try and take a slightly circuitous route through all the countries we we went to. Um, but Greece so, was beautiful. It was, a, it was a kind of very enjoyable one to do. Yeah, it really was, and and that was a more of a revelation than the the, the other places we visited. In that, uh, you know, I we all have sort of a, when you have an image of a country I always thought of Greece as like a place with because I've only ever been to the islands and apart from uh, uh, the, the Acropolis um, in Athens um, you know I just thought Greece was a place that had, had lots of rocks and not many trees and, uh, and uh, olives yeah and yeah. some olives and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was the most varied and interesting and uh, it felt like it was a, a real a real uh, well it was a real journey um, so I I, you know, I definitely I mean it's interesting that uh, we did the trip to Italy and I've been back there you know a handful of times to the same places where we we filmed that series because it's such a, a wonderful uh, enticing seductive part of the world the Amalfi Coast um, and um, uh, I feel the same way about Greece Greece and uh, Ithaca and uh, Hydra and these places that are uh, sort of um, uh, really uh, fell in love with yeah. yeah is there any overlap between the Greece of greed and the Greece of the trip are you addressing any bit. of these complicated issues in the trip a little bit I mean before either of them I'd been visiting Greek islands to meet Syrian refugees for another project mm -hmm. so I visited several islands uh, near Turkey where, where there are still large numbers of um, Syrian refugees so in the trip to Greece because they're setting off from Troy, which is in Turkey now. So they get the boat across to Lesbos, which is an island near the coast there, where there is the largest uh, refugee camp on any of the islands. Mm. So they, uh, by chance, bump into uh, one of the refugees from Greece, and uh, Steve uh, pops oh. into him. Oh, okay. And, uh, and yeah, there's, there's, he's provides called... the opportunity for a few jokes at Steve's expense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, quite, it's quite nice to say is that... Um, uh, Kareem, who is the name of the, well done for remembering uh, the, the <laughs> uh, yeah, the Syrian refugee, who's a really nice guy who does a lot of work for Syrian refugees and is sort of an, uh, you know uh, himself is a sort of uh, a, a patriarchal figure in um, his community and uh, does a lot of good work. He's a really great guy. He, he's in, he's in the, the film Greed, and uh, I think he punches one of Rich McCready's acolytes. Yes, um, I remember. He, he's the kind of main he, yes, main, exactly. main refugee, refugee yeah. spokesperson. He, yeah. Yeah. Well, we bump into him in the trip, but and of course, because Michael likes to do things at Steve Coogan, the character in the trip's expense, um, <laughs> uh, I say to Rob, oh, that's that guy. I did a movie with him. Uh, I say that in the trip. You know, I did yeah. a movie with him. Um, and I can't remember his name. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> and Rob, and I think he introduced himself to Rob, and I and I do that thing of going, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, it's Kareem, yeah, yeah, like like I knew, you know. Um, right, right. And uh, yeah, so. Well, how does the Steve <clears throat> Coogan character work? I mean, how do you? Does everybody collaborate ideas for the Steve Coogan character? Um, no, not really. It's like Rob. I mean, Rob and I sort of try to undermine each other and play up to the roles we ascribe ourselves and there's some truth in it michael comes up with uh, uh script suggestions even though we improvise in a structure mm -hmm. and um and maybe the odd line uh, but we sort of you know it's uh because that it's sort of like one remove so you know an actor plays my son uh in, in the movie and the first series actors play my parents and you know, I, I don't. I don't have a, a, a biological son, mm -hmm. uh, but but mm -hmm. I do in the trip. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a daughter in reality. So mm -hmm. we, we just a little things like that, and, and would help us distance it from ourselves, even though it is ourselves. And so that allows you license actually when you're improvising to be really unsympathetic about yourself. Right. Uh, 
and sort of exaggerate or give platform to those aspects of uh, well those aspects of me that I think aren't very nice but are it are sort of more interesting yeah uh, uh, because there's sort of a um, it's a strange kind of double bluff being played on the audience because you say because people watching go why is he portraying himself as such a, a jerk you know um, I don't quite know the answer to it, but it, it stops it being <laughs> just being some PR exercise where, where, where I'm saying, what a nice guy, what a, don't you think I'm such a great guy and playing myself as... So. Well, it's, it's a bit like celebrities coming to the party in Greed, which we hope people realise that if, if the celebrities are in our film, it shows that, you know, that they are self-aware and they're setting themselves up, and right, they're, yeah. not, they're not the yeah. sort of people who would go along and, and be at those yeah. parties. So it's, yeah, it's I mean, we're, yeah, so... so uh, well, it reminds me, I've, you know, I'm watching the new season, I think it's 10, of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, it's no, not too different from no, what Larry not. David's doing. Yeah, well, that, that's true. In fact, in fact, one of the reasons I think we were, we were reluctant to do it is because... Uh, uh, Larry David had, had got a lot of celebrities on his show playing themselves and, mm -hmm. and satirizing themselves. And Michael said this is going to be, you know, more than some of his parts. It won't just be you two making fun of what people think you are or using your your sort of alternative realities. And and, and I was sort of surprised that the, the appeal it had because uh, because it's a... Although we're, we are playing ourselves, there's things we talk about that are universal, you know, growing yeah. old, dealing with life, and yeah. dealing with the, the things that um, people will recognize, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and also talking about things not beyond ourselves, you know, I mean, uh, and also how, what your attitude to life is. My attitude tends to be sort of, I'm quite precious, and I'm sort of trying to uh, um, acquire knowledge, as much knowledge as I can, in a very ostentatious way. <laughs> and Rob is, uh, wears life very lightly on his shoulders and is very amenable to people, doesn't get as, hardly gets angry at all. Mm -hmm. And um, th those are sort of, uh, you know, it's the kind of the, um, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm Cromwellian and he's a cavalier. Uh, I'm, I'm, referring to, I'm referring to the British Civil War. It's going to be awesome. Wow. Yeah, uh, good. But, Thank uh, you. We'll send uh, it to our, our <laughs> two YouTube, two YouTube uh, Wikipedia. Two sides of the British British character, yeah. which is the, yeah. you know, um, which is, uh, Rob looks like he'd be more fun to hang out with. You know, and I look, <laughs> and I look uh, just angry. At what about the impressions? Uh, any new impressions in this one that people can look forward to? I think there's, uh, do we do anything? I can't remember. We, uh, That's why it's the last one. I think we were yeah, right I was going to say why the end of that road. I think we do, yeah, we just, we, People say, is, is it radically different? It's sort of the same as the others, um, really. But it, the, there's a slight difference in that we, we manage, we sort of grapple a little bit with Greek mythology and uh, and Greek philosophy. Um, and there's enough in there, I think, to uh, to make it interesting. Uh, so, yeah. Michael, do you have a favourite of their impressions? I like them all. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very diplomatic. Particularly, particularly in the first the first time we did it. But I think it's still. Still, the case that my usual, the only thing I probably say is, is, a note, is that you can always, you know, why don't you do one of your voices, really? That's about, yeah. that's about the only case my direction. Can you not just do a bit of Michael Caine or whatever? It's, it's <laughs> I was, my, I'm, I was surprised when I think, because the films, uh, when they emerge, so always seem to have something, have um, more depth than they appeared to have when we were shooting it, you know, and there's more poignancy than they appeared to have when we were shooting it. Um, because, and it always surprises me because the only direction Michael ever gives is to say, do a funny voice. <laughs> uh, but there you go. All right. Well, it's so great to hang out with you guys. Thank you very much for coming to talk with us. And uh, everyone, go see Greed. And then go see The Trip. They're both opening in rapid succession. Yeah. Thank you. 
That does it for this week's episode. As I mentioned, we'll all be back next week uh, to start looking at the year ahead and maybe even next year's Oscars. We are the crazy people who would do such a thing in February. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. We love hearing from you as always. You can find us on our own on Twitter. I'll list it off. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard and Joanna, who are still around, they're at Rye Laws and Joe wrote this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what might be the best guideline for giving an award season speech goes to Steve Coogan. If you don't piss anybody off, you're probably doing something wrong or yeah. bland 